I didn't need to work harder. I needed to work smarter. I didn't need to work more. I needed more rest. I didn't need team bonding. I needed team boundaries. Welcome to Life and Leadership with Kim Williams. I'm the CEO of Interfaith Family Services, a nonprofit that provides housing, health, and hope for families facing homelessness. I'm also the principal of Kim Williams Consulting, a change management firm that empowers nonprofits to change for the better. And I'm the author of Diary of an Insecure CEO, How I Went from Feeling Rejected to Raising Millions. I've led through a variety of organizational issues while raising over $50 million to fight poverty and learning a lot in the process. I created this podcast to share those lessons and help you to successfully navigate life and leadership. So let's get started. Severely hectic. That's how I describe my first year as CEO of Interfaith Family Services. From the moment that I walked through the door on my first day to the end of my first official year, my schedule was packed and my stress level was high. I was facing two problems that no leader wants to face, and I was facing them simultaneously. First, we had a financial crisis. I'd found out on my second week as CEO that we were facing a $500,000 deficit, and we were in the final year of a $220,000 grant, which if unaddressed would have led to a $700,000 hole in the next year's budget. Then in my sixth week on the job, our chief development officer, the personal responsible for fundraising had resigned. I felt like I was being punked or at least punished because the one thing that I told the search committee was that while I was a strong leader and master strategist, I was not a fundraiser. But just seven weeks into the job, I'd become one for the sake of the organization and its survival. Little did I know that I would raise nearly $50 million in the years ahead. But that's a story for another day. The second crisis we were facing was a cultural crisis. The culture of the organization was, there's no other way to put it, toxic. We had three groups working alongside each other. The first group was a group of staff that had backed an internal candidate for the job of CEO and made up their minds before I even walked through the door that they wouldn't like me. Another group was a group of ministers who attempted and were successful at first to use our common background and Christian faith to sway the way that I saw things in their favor. Then there was a well-meaning and mission-minded group who just wanted to see our clients and the organization succeed and were unsure if I was the one to help us do it. So in those first two years, everything felt urgent. With both a financial and cultural crisis, I constantly had leaders coming in and out of my office asking questions, seeking insight on the new direction that I was taking. And then there were the donor meetings to fill in the financial gap and interview after interview as I replaced the first wave of staff who resigned after a first tough year. And I also spent a lot of my time addressing board questions, staff questions, just issue after issue. I was working 10 to 12 hours a day, getting up early to work before work and staying late to work after. 
I would be in meetings most of the day with staff and donors and other people and then work late to do the thinking work I needed to redesign our programs to improve our outcomes, design new fundraising campaigns, and create the infrastructure needed to support it all. By the end of my first year, I was exhausted and I was leading like it. I was not as thoughtful or careful with my words as I intended to be or needed to be. My frustration was showing and my patience was diminishing with each passing day. To make matters worse, I was venting to a member of my staff who ended up being the absolute worst person I could have chosen. My actions were directly and indirectly impacting an already challenging culture in a negative way. And I didn't know it until that culture blew up in my face. By that time, I knew something had to change. My board and fellow leaders recommended spending more time with team building and bonding, and I tried. But it had made an already crowded plate more crowded, and my frustration was growing into resentment. Then, after taking some time off for prayer and reflection, I realized where I'd made my mistake. I didn't need to work harder. I needed to work smarter. I didn't need to work more. I needed more rest. I didn't need team bonding. I needed team boundaries. Boundaries would limit impromptu conversations and help to ensure that more of my interactions were planned and that I was prepared for even the toughest of conversations. Boundaries would help me prioritize my optimum work hours for my work so that I would not have to work as much in the evenings. Boundaries would allow me the time and space to recharge and relax on the weekends. Boundaries would give me the capacity to show up as my best self. And one thing I knew for sure, when I'm my best self, I'm practically unbeatable. So over a series of months, I established three key boundaries that empowered me to lead for the better. Now let's talk about them. Let's talk strategy. All right. So I said that there are three key boundaries that empowered me to lead for the better. Let's talk about them. So the first is personal boundaries. If I had to do it all over again, I would have listened to my husband and created personal boundaries from the start of my tenure as CEO. But as with so many things in my life, I learned the hard way. The good news is I have them now. My personal boundaries govern when I leave the office and when I log off at home. These boundaries protect my weekend from work by establishing a clear cutoff for work emails at five o'clock on Fridays. It also ensures that there are no cell phones at the dinner table and designated worship time and family time on Sundays. Now, I do check emails from time to time when I'm off for extended periods of time. The truth is that as a CEO, you're rarely fully off. There always be things that require your quick feedback, like contracts that need your review and signature or something like that. However, taking a half an hour a day to sort through and respond to emails isn't overwhelming when I'm off. In fact, it actually helps me to relax for the rest of the day to know that either there are no urgent matters for me to address or that if there were, I address them. Right now, I'm technically off for the month of June. 
But I plan on reviewing emails each morning for the first three weeks because I don't want to come in and have a thousand emails. That would totally kill my relaxation vibe. Now, on the week before I return to the office, I plan to completely log off that week because most things can hold for five business days. With that being said, my personal time isn't the only thing I put a boundary around. I also put a boundary around my personal life. Besides the normal, did you do anything special this weekend? How's your family doing? Type of question. I tend to keep my personal life to myself. After all, employees come and go and you never know who they are until you tell them no or deny a request or promotion. Then an employee who seemed to be very kind and supportive in the past can become your biggest critic. Now, do you want your biggest critic to have access to personal information about your life? I think not. As a CEO, I've learned to be friendly but not casual with my employees. I show an interest in their lives while giving just enough insight into mine without being too personal or inappropriate in any way. I also no longer hire friends or mentees or people who know me outside of work. In almost every instance of doing so in the past, regardless of how qualified or capable they were, they felt entitled to special treatment in some form or another, and it affected our personal relationship when I failed to give it to them. Life has taught me that personal boundaries in a professional setting promote peace and productivity. So what's the second boundary? Calendar boundaries. The next essential boundary is calendar boundaries. My calendar has very clear boundaries. No meetings on Mondays. This allows me to read through all my team's weekly reports, check our project management boards to see where all the teams are on critical projects, and read through articles on new trends in our industry from a variety of publications. Monday allows me really to get ahead. This way, I start the week ready to go without having to use my Sunday to prepare for meetings on Monday. Tuesday is for team meetings. I meet daily with my assistant, but I meet weekly with leaders who report directly to me, monthly with all leaders, monthly with my board chair, monthly with my finance chair, and then we also hold monthly all staff meetings. So Tuesday is for team meetings. Wednesday and Thursday are reserved for external meetings with donors, potential partners, members of my network, boards that I sit on, etc. And Fridays before noon are open to whatever's left. Um, and Friday's afternoon is dedicated for weekly wrap-up, allowing me time to catch up on emails, sending any information requested from those meetings I had on Wednesday and Thursday, etc. My assistant knows that I would prefer to have no meetings on any day before nine o'clock in the morning unless absolutely necessary and none after 4 p.m. I'm very religious about my system and I stick to it with very few exceptions. So you may be thinking, how do you stick to that schedule? Well, first, I funnel all meeting requests to my executive assistant who's in charge of scheduling my meetings according to my guidelines. But even before I had one, I did what I taught her to do when someone requests a meeting outside of the designated time on my calendar. I say, unfortunately, I'm not available at that time. Would you have availability on one of these three alternative dates? Then I give them three options within my designated times. 
nine out of 10 times, they're available at one of those options. And if they're not, I keep providing options that align with my calendar boundaries. Now, the only exception to those boundaries are grants with major donors who have specific review timelines like Crystal Charity Ball. Um, I also make exceptions for media interviews, which have to fit within their planned news cycles. And of course, any emergencies that may arise. But having donor meetings, media interviews, and emergencies occur outside of my designated times is actually rare. As a result of these boundaries, the predictability gives me peace and the pattern, particularly having no meetings on Monday and none after noon on Friday, allowed me to enjoy my weekend. Now, the third type of boundary that I established to lead better is communication boundaries. Another important boundary is knowing when to talk, when not to talk, and how much to say. Now, if I'm honest, this has been one of the hardest lessons and the most recent lessons, meaning in the last three years, that I've had to learn. And as someone who historically has spoken her mind, this was a hard lesson. But age and experience has taught me that fewer words are required than you think for most interactions. So what do these boundaries look like? Well, first, if they don't ask for your opinion, in most cases, you should keep it to yourself. That's one that I really wish my family would have taught me. But I come from a very loving, fiercely loyal, completely outspoken family. So that wasn't likely to happen. And then I was also a boss by the age of 26. I was already leading my first team. So... I didn't have opportunities in my work environment for people to teach me to keep my opinion to myself either. So few people who would work with me on a regular basis would tell me what they really thought because who tells their boss I didn't ask for your opinion? That just doesn't really happen. It took some issues in my personal friendships where my unsolicited advice and feedback came back to haunt me or hurt friendships that caused me to learn this lesson. While my sharing honestly comes from a good place because I want everyone around me to live their best life, I didn't take into account their personal strengths or weaknesses or even God's timing at work in their lives. I saw a problem or they were venting to me about one and I wanted to help. After some issues in those friendships, I realized how I would feel if my friends did the same thing for, with me. So for instance, what if I had a friend who wanted me to get healthy because they genuinely wanted me to live longer and then every time I was around them or I was eating, they would pressure me to make good food choices or criticize the poor ones that I made. You know, honestly, it would suck. (laughs) Um, I probably wouldn't want to hang out with them that often. And I realized after kind of putting myself in their shoes, that's how some of my friends felt. I learned not to offer unsolicited advice, you know, at all, really. Or even when people ask for advice, I learned to be careful about the advice I gave. I needed to learn how to read the room, how to think empathetically before speaking and strategically think before opening my mouth. So I learned to ask myself three questions when people were sharing their problems. Are they just venting? Did they ask for my advice? And even if they did, does their past behavior or patterns support that they're really ready to do something different? 
So if they're just venting, I now just let them do it. I just tell them that I'm sorry that they're going through that and that I'll pray for them. And I do. If they ask for my advice, I also think carefully before giving it. If it's an easy work-related process fix or just some information that they need, I'll share it lightly, simply, positively. But if it's a more complex fix that's out of my experience or uh, area of expertise or something maybe I simply don't feel comfortable sharing, I offer a referral. I may say something like, you know who you should really talk to about this? But if their past behavior indicates that they're more likely to do what they always do, then I say something like, what do you want to do? What do you feel led to do? This way I can sort sort of stay out of the way as they make the choice they were going to make anyway. So, okay, I know I got off on a personal tangent, but it applies to work as well. Employees vent too, and when they do, it's okay to listen and allow them to solve the problem for themselves and prompt them to do so. In fact, in the workplace, you want to coach your team on how to solve a problem for themselves because it gives them more confidence and independence in the future. I'm learning to give fewer directions and ask more questions when my team comes to me with issues. And another key communication boundary is to stop when your emotions are getting too high. I've literally ended meetings abruptly when I feel myself getting too frustrated or angry. I use the last bit of calmness and self-control I have to say something like, listen, I think we might need to table this for now. I personally need some time to absorb this, do a little research, and get back to you when I've had more time to process. Then I'll thank them for sharing and let them know I'll get back with them soon. This way, I don't say anything that I may regret or that I don't want repeated. And recently, I've added a part B to stopping when emotions are getting high. And that part B is wait one full business day to send an email or to respond. I'm always calmer and more strategic the next day. But those emails or texts that I send the day of can go either way. And most times the way they go is not the way that I would have chosen the next day. Finally, the last communication boundary that's actually been the most fun for me to adopt, and it really matures me, you know, the most, I think, is kind of like the bestseller says, don't sweat the small stuff. I'm a recovering perfectionist. And when I try, I can typically make most things better. But guess what? I don't work for the world and I'm not everyone's personal assistant or coach. So as Tabitha Brown encourages us to do, I'm learning to mind my business and leave other people's business to them. So what does that look like in a work setting? Well, first, um, for CEO, giving input on all the details of the organization, all the projects and tasks can be exhausting for you and discouraging for your team who may begin to feel like they can't do anything right. When in fact, most things aren't a matter of right or wrong, but good or great or experience or inexperience. Sometimes experience is the best teacher for your team and good will do just fine, especially if it promotes peace. So here's how it works for me at work. If it's not a big deal, I let it go. If it doesn't affect my ability to reach a goal or meet an important deadline, I let it go. If it really makes no material difference one way or another, I let it go. 
If they want pink roses for the luncheon and I would prefer tulips, I let it go. If it doesn't impact messaging or affect the desired outcome in any real way, I let it go. While details matter, what matters most is often how you execute them, meaning that you're on time, clean, organized, error-free, and unoffensive as reasonably possible, as well as friendly when you execute and that you deliver on what you promised. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder when it comes to aesthetics. And when it comes to speeches or marketing, success is more a result of passion, conviction, and organized thoughts than it is specific word usage. So as a CEO, my focus is high quality execution and not really all those details. I leave a lot of those details to the experts on my team who specialize in them. Of course, I jump in and course correct if it gets off track or off brand. And I review and rehearse repeatedly ahead of time to minimize the need to do so. But all in all, I no longer sweat the small stuff. On a side note, and something I've recently learned, is just because it's small to me doesn't mean it's small to them. So I'm learning to just say things like, that sounds great, instead of, it doesn't matter to me. This way, they stay passionate about their work and don't feel dismissed or inconsequential. While you want to use fewer words, you want to make sure the words that you do use convey a genuine interest and appreciation for the efforts of those you work with. So I'm learning to slow down and give more attention and intentionality to the moments that I spend with others, both in and out of the office. And it's a genuine game changer for me in the best way. And I think it'll be for you. So as I close, I want to encourage you to do three things. Set and revisit your personal boundaries, um, revisit your calendar boundaries, and your communication boundaries. Not only will this reduce your stress, but it will increase your ability to lead well. Now, a final word of encouragement. Well, fellow leader, I'm about to tell you something that no one else is willing to tell you. I know because too few were willing to tell me. What do I have to tell you? Well, this is going to resonate with some of you, maybe more than others, but for those it resonates with, listen to the words I'm about to say, you're being too harsh. I know, I know you just want to do what's best for the organization and your clients. You have that high expectations because you care so much, but that's getting lost in your tone. But you know what? You're harsh because you're tired. You're tired of being the CEO, the chief editing officer, who is checking up on everyone and making sure that everything is right before it is submitted or goes live. You're tired of everyone's questions, issues, and problems unexpectedly landing on your desk day after day when all you want to do is come in and get your work done. You're exhausted, and you have been for some time, and guess what? It's making you, who was given this opportunity because you're so visionary, inspiring, and high-performing, hard to work with. So take a few days off. Relax, recharge, reset your leadership style to reflect who you really are. Then restructure your team so that more of those frustrating issues are evenly distributed among other leaders whose responsibility it is to handle them and trust them to do so.
Finally, re-secure your personal boundaries to give you more interrupted downtime to regularly recharge and consistently show up as your best self. Whatever you do, know that you can't keep doing it like this. You don't want your own behavior to negatively impact your work or reputation that you've worked your whole life to build. Stop making excuses. Stop perpetuating stereotypes. Just stop. Get some rest. Love on yourself. Forgive yourself. Allow God to fill in the empty spaces. Let his mercy wash over you and his grace empower you. And then, my friend, just begin again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the insight and the experience, for the ups and the downs that are all working together for our good. We give you our past and we trust you with our future. We thank you for giving us the strength, the insight, the ability to um, integrate the lessons that you're giving us into our lives. And we look forward to all the great things that lie ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Today's tips can be found on my website, kimwconsulting.com. Just click the resource tab in the menu. You can also find information about my consulting services and upcoming events and subscribe to my monthly life and leadership newsletter. If you found this podcast helpful, please share, rate, and subscribe. Thank you for listening. And remember, change is inevitable, but changing for the better isn't. Change wisely. Change wisely.